AWS may be one of the biggest cloud providers in the world, but because of its size, it comes with a raft of confusing, strange, and new ideas and concepts. This can cause some significant challenges to organizations that are trying to work on an AWS platform. But there's a solution. And it comes in the form of CloudFix, an organization that was born out of solving problems with AWS and has since turned around to offer those solutions to its new customers. This is the Cloud Tweaks podcast, where we look at developments and stories dealing with cloud, cybersecurity, and other areas of business tech. And I am your host, Steve Prentice, and I'll let my guest introduce himself. Hi, everyone. I'm Rahul Subramaniam. I'm the CEO at CloudFix and the CTO at ESW Capital. So Rahul, on this podcast, first of all, we love to talk about the people who are making waves in cloud and related technology. So perhaps we can start with the path that brought you to develop CloudFix. There obviously was a need that you were able to address. Um, as I said earlier, my, my role as CTO at ESW Capital is uh, very, very interesting. Uh, we are a group of now over 150 enterprise software companies. And in my role, um, I oversee all technology. Now, back in 2007, um, as we were looking at some of our infrastructure options, and to be very honest, we were grappling with reliability and scalability and all of those problems back then. One of the big, you know, aha moments for me was when I discovered AWS and the fact that I could launch a new infrastructure with a simple API call. Uh, that completely blew my mind and I was sold on AWS back then. And even though AWS was literally just two or three services, I think it was just EC2, S3, and uh, uh, SQS, I think if I'm not mistaken at that time, it really was quite a game changer even then. And we've we kind of made a big bet on AWS since then. And a large part of our turnaround stories for the acquisitions that we have is moving all of these workloads to AWS. So AWS is a big part of my history with uh, cloud um, and all the you know, deep relationships that we built over the years trying to move our workloads over to AWS. So from there stems the problem that you know, we suddenly found ourselves with over 40,000 AWS accounts that we were managing for all of our workloads across all of our companies. And costs on AWS were simply going out of control. And that's kind of when the whole story of CloudFix starts. So there was a cost control issue that was maybe both magnified by scale in that you were managing so many accounts, but on account of that scale, you were able to identify a possible solution. This sounds like a great free enterprise story. You saw a problem, you saw an urgency in the market, and you saw a method to solve it. So what did you do next? Yeah, so like anyone else would do, the first thing you try to do is you look for every solution in the market that helps you identify potential cost savings and that's exactly what we did. We went out and looked for every tool out there in the market and uh, started using them. And initially, we were delighted with the promises that a lot of these tools were making. More often than not, I think pretty much every one of these tools told us we could save at least 50% on our costs. And that was music to our ears. So we put together a SWAT team and we started going after all of these savings. But very soon, we kind of ran into a bunch of issues. Problem number one was pretty much every one of these tools 
tells you what the, or the, a general area where you might have savings, but figuring out what trade-offs to make, what decisions to make, and then actually doing the work to get the savings is all yours. Like there's no help. There's no automatic fixing that's happening in any one of these tools. So that was problem number one. Problem number two was that invariably these savings required major surgery on the application or the deployment or the environment. And major surgery implies that there would be some disruption of sorts. Uh, even the simplest things like rebooting a machine, which you would think is you know fairly harmless, uh, we have found a number of cases where those would cause disruptions because uh, in a number of scenarios, we actually did not know what was in memory in those instances that was not persisted over to disk or not persisted over into whatever storage system was behind the scenes. So even this, what we considered the simplest changes uh, turned out to be disruptive one way or the other, and we lost data in some cases. Um, sometimes we had to have downtimes for hours because we had to restore back to a previous checkpoint. Um, there were a bunch of issues that we had to overcome, and this started becoming one of the reasons why teams, our own product teams, would start pushing back and saying, hey, we don't want to make these changes because they're too disruptive. And even though we tried to explain to them that, nope, they're big cost savings to go, go after it, they were like, we will lose customers if there are disruptions of this sort. And if you don't understand all these complicated trade-offs, then we just don't want to run all of these tools. So we were running into these you know, um, issues with our own teams, you know, trying to run these tools and get the findings, create our own insights, and then you know, drive the savings. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we took a step back. So in, a, in about a year, I, I don't think we made any progress at all. And to be very frank, that whole exercise was an unmitigated disaster. Our costs <laughs> were continuing to rise and we made absolutely no progress. So we took a step back and we said, we have to get these savings because at the end of the day, that, that matters a lot. So we started looking at every AWS recommendation or advisory that they were putting out that was related to cost. And we started pruning them down to only the fixes that were completely non-disruptive as certified by AWS, okay? Um, and then we started taking those and we started applying them across the board. So because they were non-disruptive, we did not need to seek permission across our product teams and so on. We just applied them. They were very, very simple changes. And what we found that, yeah, we weren't getting the big, you know, 50, 60% savings that the other tools were promising, mm. but the automation that we provide, that we built for ourselves was getting us anywhere from five to twenty percent, depending on the service that we were dealing with. But there were anywhere between five and twenty percent savings to be had. In the grand scheme of things, that was big, because from constantly, you know, increasing your spend, we were now able to free up a bunch of our budget to then apply to other areas of investment. And given that these were completely non-disruptive. I think it was kind of another one of those aha moments for us where we were like, you know, this is a pretty neat tool because it gets you business value without any trade-offs, without any, you know, um, buy-in required from all the different teams. And we've been using it internally for a while and we save tons of money every week as this tool keeps running. Uh -huh. Now, about um, seven, eight months ago, we kind of decided that 
this is something, as we were talking to a lot of our customers, we realized that this was something that a lot of our customers could benefit from. And so for the first time, we started you know, taking this tool externally and uh, started offering it to our customer base. But again, the simple summary of the value proposition of this tool is it's really easy to get set up. In about five or six clicks, you're, you're on. And then it just keeps saving you money with all of these completely non-disruptive fixes. For the first time, you have a tool that actually fixes it for you, and hence the name CloudFix. This is a fabulous story because, first of all, you discovered these problems, you wrestled with these problems, you fixed these problems, and then you turned it around to become a tool that other people could benefit from. So often we find ourselves in this world or in an industry where we have technologies that look like a solution without a problem, but you were following the classic path of building a better mousetrap and having the world beat a path to your door. But you didn't actually plan to build that mousetrap. No, and like I said, we actually built this tool for ourselves. Uh, this wasn't, this didn't start off being a tool, you know, for external use. I, I mean, uh, if anyone is familiar with AWS, grappling with the management of 40,000 plus AWS accounts is no mean feat. Uh, it is, you know, um, it, it requires us to, you know, spread our accounts across multiple organizations because AWS organizations itself can't handle that many accounts in one org. So we were kind of pushing the boundaries on what um, AWS is capable of doing. Uh, at the same time, these costs were just going out of control and therefore we built this tool for ourselves and for a very, very, very real, highly scalable use case of our own. Well, that, of course, leads me to my next question. Since you work so closely with AWS, and I don't want to say anything bad about them, but we have had a lot of conversations on our podcast series in the past about the big mega super cloud services like Google, AWS, Azure, Oracle, IBM, Alibaba, and others that dominate the world's workplace. And there's also, of course, a lot of small and medium-sized providers and so forth, all looking to find their own place in the marketplace. But, you know, when you're dealing with such an enormous creature as AWS... One might assume that the kinds of problems that you had to go out and solve would have been solved internally by their own teams. So why is it that these types of problems exist at all? Needing smart people like yourself and your team to come in and fix them. Why, why does this happen? Or is this simply the nature of the beast being so big? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, so it's important to understand uh, AWS as an organization. Um, AWS has made a very conscious bet and a trade-off uh, where they want to focus on innovation. And therefore, the way they've designed their teams is to, you know, I think uh, the specific phrase I, I, I'm lost on, it's either let a million trees grow or let a thousand flowers bloom. I don't know which one is the right phrase they use internally. But the way they think about things is they create all of these super independent teams that can go create amazing new services that push the boundary of, taking what was custom design software and turning it into a commodity utility services that you can call with an API. And that's the focus. They are so laser focused on all of that. And the trade-off that you make when, you, when you're making that big bet is that not all the services talk seamlessly to each other. And, you know, there are going to be gaps in the middle. There are going to be, you know, um, there are going to be things that are going to evolve over time as maturity progresses. In a lot of cases, they themselves don't know what exactly is going to work, what is not going to work. They experiment a ton. And the big bet we make on AWS is for that reason. We make the bet on AWS because 
they are so focused on driving innovation. They are so focused on commoditizing these um, utility services that it's totally worth it for them to just do that. And all of these gaps that show up is something that you know their customers can absolutely go fill. Now, a consequence of those gaps is also that AWS also has an amazing partner ecosystem of you know vendors and ISVs who are not only leveraging all of these AWS services, but they are closing the gap on some of these you know utility functions around it, like cost uh, optimization, and that's a good thing as well. So I don't see that as a negative. I you know if if innovation and technology is where you want to place your bet, then you know it it's absolutely a no-brainer to make that better on AWS. That's a very interesting assessment of AWS to let a thousand flowers bloom, but it also demonstrates the power of an ecosystem as a whole, right? With organizations like CloudFix existing in a symbiotic relationship that really exactly describes an ecosystem. So you have described the context of working with AWS, which many of our listeners either do or will always be contemplating. But then there's you. When we're talking about CloudFix and what it does, if you and I were meeting somewhere, let's say chatting on a plane, and I ask you for the elevator description, you know, what do you do or why would my company want to work with you? How would you summarize what you deliver to an organization and what kind of companies you'd be looking to work with? So I think uh, the kind of people that I love working with are the people who are starting to make a bet on AWS or have already made a bet on AWS. And the reason are two. Folks who are betting big on AWS are looking at problems around scalability, reliability, and availability. And you know the elasticity that they get for all of these utility services out of AWS is something that they want to leverage. Um, fundamentally, I have a different perception of how software should be built compared to most others. And I find that people who are making the big bet on you know, cloud services like AWS are the ones that are more aligned with the way I think about the world. A lot of companies think of their code, for example, as their biggest asset. You know, the millions of lines of code that they've written, uh, they see that as their biggest asset. I treat that as their biggest liability. In fact, that's my biggest liability through, you know, all the products and code that that we manage. Um, and I see AWS as the operating system of the future on which you build your apps by stitching together a lot of these commodity services. And you as a company needs to focus on only the pure business value delivery layer, which should be really tiny. Everything else that we build today, you know, 90% of software that has been built over the last 15, 20 years is commodity today. And there, it doesn't make any sense to rebuild that or, you know, reinvent the wheel when it comes to those standard utility functions. You much rather just call an API and get that job done. So folks who are moving to AWS, who are making the big bet on AWS and solving planet scale problems on AWS, um, I love working with them because of this alignment of vision. So just looking ahead into the new world in which we're in now, I, I never want to say post-COVID because, you know, that's still wrapping itself around the world. But we are in a new kind of concept with people seeing and reestablishing their companies with regards to things like work from home and just being more dynamic and agile. 
So what do you see, Rahul, in terms of your vision as an expert in this area? What are you seeing as the new marketplace over, let's say, the next five or ten years? We've got quantum computing on the horizon. We've got issues with blockchain. We've got all these other peripheral concepts that people are considering. So if you can just take a look into your crystal ball, what are you seeing as the next, let's say, five years of life in the cloud for organizations? Uh, that's a very loaded question, and I, I have I, I, I slice it in many different di- in dimensions. So, number one, I think it's really important for organizations to understand that now more than ever before, it is possible for a kid in a dorm room to build an application in the cloud that is planet scale and challenge, you know, the old guard, you know, Fortune five hundred, Global two thousand enterprises that were that had massive teams of developers building these solutions. Today, you can take a bunch of these services that are available literally as commodity services, um, you know, at a few cents an hour of cost, and you can stitch them together to literally build a planet scale solution. So if large organizations are not leveraging the cloud, uh, I foresee competition literally eating them up because the competition is now not another large organization. It could be a kid in a dorm room, right? So that is one fundamental shift that has happened. The second shift that has happened is that uh, I think the world has become more accepting of the fact that work can be done from anywhere in the world. And unfortunately, a lot of the on-premise setup and infrastructure doesn't cater to that new world and the new way of doing work. And cloud, given that it's been around since 2005 or thereabouts, uh, is a true enabler. Uh, By the way, we as an organization moved to complete remote and global where we have thousands of, you know, uh, our entire organization, in fact, is completely remote and global. We have folks in 130 different countries and we've been operating in the cloud on AWS um, since 2008. And we've been able to do that fundamentally because of services like AWS. We, I don't think we would have been able to make that kind of shift or a transition uh, if we did not have someone like AWS you know, with the technology stack that they have. So adopting the cloud has now become an imperative uh, rather than a good to have. And lastly, like I said before, the future of developing products and applications is all about stitching together these services. And so you need a completely different skill set going forward. I see, I don't see developers writing millions of lines of code to produce a new product or a new application or a new solution. I see a different skill set where I see a new kind of developer who is starting to see patterns where if you want, for example, a business intelligence solution for the tons of data that you have, you know, the standard pattern that you might see is I'm going to put all my data into S3. I'm going to use a service like Athena to query it. And I'm going to use a dashboarding like QuickSight. And those three services I stitched together to give me a business intelligence solution. Now, if I have really interesting latency uh, requirements where I need stuff to come back really, really fast, then instead of S3, I might switch over to Redshift, right? So there are, I foresee that you're not going to have your traditional developers who are so focused on 
the Java or Node or JavaScript or C++ or Python code that they're writing day in and day out. I foresee that building solutions is going to be all about finding these patterns, stitching together these commodity services, and delivering value from these patterns to the customers. So uh, that is that is more of a fundamental shift that I see. Whether the mechanics of these services are via quantum computing or blockchain or the traditional, you know, server-oriented centralized architectures. That is something for me that is transient. There's another. There's, you could replace one API call with another one that might completely change the underlying technology that drives it, and it wouldn't matter. It's just a question of which one is which API call is faster, better, produces more accurate results. And how much does it cost? You make those trade-offs and pick the, the API call you want. The key difference is, as long as you're building your solution by stitching together these services, you'll be able to leverage literally anything that's out there in a very interswappable manner. Rahul, this has been fascinating. Not only did we learn about you and your company, CloudFix, but you gave us some amazing insight into the workings of AWS and Big Cloud in the present and equally importantly into the future. So thank you so much for joining us here today on the Cloud Weeks podcast. Thanks, Dan Steve, for having me over. And it was an absolute pleasure. Rahul Subramaniam is CEO at CloudFix and is also CTO at ESW Capital. You can find out more about CloudFix at cloudfix.com. And as for us, you can also check us out at cloudtweaks.com and follow us on Twitter at cloudtweaks. If your company is looking for some great exposure to thousands of decision makers in the IT, cloud and related industries worldwide, please do get in touch. We can craft a campaign that will get you noticed through our website, social media and newsletter channels, all of which enjoy a substantial readership. Until next time, I'm Steve Prentice. Stay safe and thanks for listening.